0: reading this morning will come from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 56. Luke 1, 26 through 56. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name, was, whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. All right, thank you, Daniel. Family, you may take a seat.
1: Good morning, it's good to see you all here. Thank you for uh, prioritizing our time together uh, to worship Jesus and rehearse the gospel. We are in week two of our Advent series, which we've entitled Holding Fast to the Confession of Our Hope. And as you know, that title is anchored, we saw this last week in Hebrews 10.23, which reads... Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, something we don't do well as rescued rebels, but without wavering. Why? Because he who promised is faithful. Not because we're good at holding on, not because we're good Christians, not because we're stronger people. We hold on to the confession of our hope in Jesus because he is the faithful one. We are the faithless ones, the adopted in rebels. Our father is the faithful one. He makes promises and he's faithful to them. Let's pray, and then we will get right down to work. Father, we thank you this morning for being the faithful one. You make promises of our rescue, and you, you follow through on every promise that you have ever made. We thank you for bringing us here, Father. We so often think about church as giving you something, like we gather publicly to, to give you something. And while it is true that we do give an offering of worship, the greater truth is that we posture ourselves here as needy kids. And we posture ourselves as needy kids, believing confidently that you are a father who loves to give. And so we're here again this morning as your children, just, just with our, our arms raised up and our hands open, asking to receive from you. Father, we know re- we, we receive. You sent Jesus He's the fulfillment of your promises. Jesus, we thank you for coming to our rescue, being our rescuing king. And we know we receive because you send us your spirit. Your spirit, the Holy Spirit, you bring us to life. You give us the gift of faith and you open our ears to hear our dad's voice and to see him. And so we pray again that that's what you would do for us this morning. Open our ears to hear our father's voice above all the other voices that are in our culture and in our hearts and in our heads and open our eyes so that we can Fix our gaze on, our, on our, our dad and our rescuing king and older brother, Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer awoke the morning of December 25th, 1943, on a hard wooden bed. And Tony Rinke wrote about Bonhoeffer's experience in a blog entitled, Christmas in a Cold Prison. And he writes, it was the first of two Christmases that he would spend sequestered in a Nazi prison. He'd been there for nine months, and he would be there for nine more until he was transferred to his final home, a Nazi concentration camp. It was within the suffocating suffering that Christmas seemed to take a deeper meaning for the 37 year old. He would write, a prison cell like this is a good analogy for Advent, in a letter to his friend. He said, one waits, one hopes, one does this or that, ultimately negligible things, because the door is locked and can only be opened from the outside. Which brings us to Bonhoeffer's Christmas letter from prison that he wrote to his mom and his dad on December 17th, 1943, and in it, he asks that they not worry or fret about their separation. Bonhoeffer would write this to his parents. Viewed from a Christian perspective, Christmas in a prison cell can of course hardly be considered particularly problematic. Let's just look at that a little longer and let me read it out loud one more time. Viewed from a Christian perspective with the gospel as our lens, Christmas in a prison cell can of course hardly be considered particularly problematic. Most likely, many of those here, he writes, in this building will celebrate a more meaningful and authentic Christmas than in places where it is celebrated in name only. That misery, sorrow, poverty, loneliness, helplessness, and guilt mean something quite different in the eyes of God than according to human judgment. That God turns toward the very places from which humans turn away. That Christ was born in a stable because there was no room for him in the inn. A prisoner grasps this better than others. And for him, this is truly good news. And then he writes this, to the extent that he believes it, the gospel, he knows that he has been placed within the Christian community, a family that goes beyond the scope of all spatial and temporal limits. And in that moment, the prison walls lose their significance. With great gratitude and love, your Dietrich. Crazy letter, huh? Have you ever written a letter like that? From the comfort of your couch or your bedroom, let alone from a prison cell? It's incredible. Last week we learned that Advent is about hope. It's about hope. We learned that Jesus Himself is hope. Not that hope is a secondary gift that he gives to us, but that Jesus himself, he is hope. And when we know Jesus, when he is present with us, we know hope. And because of that, only confident expectation in Jesus will dispel our uncertainty, our hopelessness, our fear, and our despair. Only confident expectation in Jesus will dispel those things. We need to know that because we culturally and just even in our Christian experience have been taught to believe that a change in circumstance will dispel my fear or my loneliness or my hopelessness. A change in relationship, a better relationship, a different relationship. This person out of my life, this person in my life. If I can just be a better person in 2021, look at my 10 resolutions so that I can be happier and This and that and more hopeful. But the gospel says that only a confident expectation in Jesus will dispel our uncertainty, our hopelessness, our fear and despair. David learned this. Remember we saw his journal entry last week. This is Psalm 62.5 where he writes, and he's writing this for himself as a reminder. He says, For God alone, O my soul, Not circumstances, not people. God alone, alone, oh my soul, wait in silence. Wait, for my hope is not from people, not from changed circumstances, not from myself, from him. So how do we get to a point in life where we can honestly express what David just said there? I mean, we would like to be able to say that with sincerity, right, and mean it. But I think deep down, we all know that we read the Bible verse, we know the Bible verse, but are, we feel a, a different kind of way. So how do we get to the point where we can honestly believe, express, and practice that? How do we get to a point where like Bonhoeffer, we can write this, viewed from a Christian perspective, Christmas, or just take Christmas out of the sentence, okay? Any day, any day of the week. In a prison cell. Now, none of you are in jail currently. That's good. We're here. So you got to take prison cell out of the sentence. Um, But you got to insert your hardship. that as you take prison cell out, you've got two or three or four or five alternatives that you could roll in there. Some circumstance, some person, some difficulty. So viewed from a Christian perspective, any day of my life, in whatever hardship I find myself, can, of course, hardly be considered particularly problematic. Wouldn't you like to be free enough in the gospel to be able to say that, write that, and mean it? Yeah, I would. To be able to write, and the prison walls lose their significance, right? And insert hardship here, loses loses its significance. It doesn't own me. My life is not owned by this hard thing. I'm in it. I'm in this valley. But it does not define me, and it does not own me. How do we gain that perspective? I'm going to submit to you this morning that we gain that perspective, right? My prison walls lose their significance only As I learn, like David, to wait in silence for the father alone, expecting the spirit to work and believing that Jesus is my hope and my hope is from him. That is the pathway. No shortcuts, no substitutes. But again, listen, our lives outside of Jesus are spent chasing shortcuts and generating substitutes. That's what we do. But there are none. There are no real shortcuts, no real substitutes. And Advent as a season reminds us that we are a waiting people. We, we are created to be a waiting people. We're always waiting for someone or something. Deep down, you know this. We are a waiting people. But we shouldn't be a waiting people only during the days of Advent. However, we should allow Advent to remind us that we need to be waiting in all of life. And like David, we would wait in silence on God alone because, here are three reasons from our narrative this morning. Number one, we wait confidently on God alone because the Father sends our rescue and nothing will be impossible with him. He is always sending rescue to his children. Always. The Father sends our rescue. We wait confidently because the Spirit works our rescue. The Father sends and the Spirit works on our behalf for our good to accomplish our rescue. And nothing is impossible with Him. And finally, we'll see in our narrative this morning, the Son, Jesus, fulfills our promised rescue. He fulfills it. He makes it happen. And nothing is impossible with Him. So let's begin at the top with the Father sends our rescue. Beginning in verse twenty-six, you notice that it, that it reads, "In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent." So the sixth month—that's not the calendar month. Uh, if next week we'll explore an earlier portion of chapter one, and we'll learn that what he's talking about here is the sixth month of Mary's relative Elizabeth, her pregnancy. So she's six months pregnant with John, hitting the tr- uh, second or third trimester hard, and in the sixth month of her pregnancy, the angel Gabriel was sent from God, or sending God, sends from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin, betrothed. Let me just key in on those two words real quick. Virgin. Uh, Depending on your faith background, you may have been taught that Mary was a perpetual virgin and that some piece of your Christianity or your theology hangs on or is dependent upon Mary being a perpetual virgin. She was not a perpetual virgin. She was a virgin when Gabriel showed up uh, but she was not perpetually. In fact, as you read the Gospels, you go, to, you, you go on to see that uh, she and Joseph did in fact consummate their marriage. They were married and they celebrated a healthy marriage like we all are supposed to, uh, giving and receiving the beautiful gift of sexuality that God has given us to enjoy. In marriage, they did and they had multiple children after Jesus was born, okay? So not a virgin, perpetual. She was uh, perpetually. She was betrothed. Um, The way to think of betrothal is this. We, as a culture, know engagement. Think of engagement as JV. And betrothal as varsity, right? So you can break an engagement. You can walk away for any reason. You can upgrade. You can, I mean, you can just walk away from an engagement. You, you, you can sell your ring on Okinawa yard sales. Like, we see them every week, right? They're there. Not betrothal, varsity level. You're betrothed. A girl in this culture probably would have been betrothed, 12, 13, 14, very young. And betrothal could only be, be severed or ended by death or divorce, However, it sounds like marriage, right? But however, they weren't living together yet. They weren't sharing intimacy. Uh, They weren't living in in the same home. But this is varsity level. Okay, so she's betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Joseph is of the house of David, which really matters because... It was foretold by the prophets long, long ago that the rescuing king would come from the line of David, the the house of David. David was Israel's uh, favorite king, arguably one of their, their best, better if not best kings. And God had made a promise to him, though David failed and his sons would fail, that eventually God would send a perfect king from his line who would not fail on our behalf to rescue us and reconcile us. So that matters, house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary, and he, Gabriel, came to her and said, "Greetings, O favored one, The Lord is with you." And again, depending on your background, uh, that sentence right there, "Greetings, O favored one, The Lord is with you," is where some faith groups get their sentence, uh, the beginning of a prayer, a prayer. "Hail Mary." you know how it goes? Full of grace, right? The idea being that Mary has this grace. In excess, and that she is a source of grace for other people. That's the idea behind saying, Hail Mary. Hail's okay. Hail fits in with, that's exactly what Gabriel said. It's just hello. It's a greeting. Um, oh, favored one, meaning one who has received much grace. But here's the grace that she has the Lord is with you. That's the grace, like that's the gift. So you and I share in that same grace if you have been reconciled to the Father through. Jesus. But the only thing I want to point out about that is Mary, she received that grace like us. She is not a source of grace for other people. Jesus alone is the source of our grace. Now, We heard this phrase a little while ago, this quote from Bonhoeffer. He said, God turns toward the very places from which humans turn away. Guys, that is the good news of the gospel right there, that God turns toward the places that everyone else turns away from. We know this is true. Bonhoeffer's not just making some feel-good Hallmark card up to send home to his mom from prison. Like He knows the gospel and he knows this narrative, so he knows that's true. And we know it's true because Nazareth is the kind of town that everybody turned away from. Nazareth is that place. You didn't go to Nazareth. You didn't visit it. You never vacationed there. If you grew up in Nazareth, you left as soon as you could for career progression. You didn't date in Nazareth when you set the parameters for your, whichever online service, because that's all we do now, right? You all got your your online date. That's how we all met. Uh, And you click your filters. You deselected Nazareth. No girls from Nazareth. Like nothing good comes from Nazareth. And we're not just making that up. We know that from the Gospels. John one forty six, when Jesus was picking his disciples and two dudes, like they realize he's from Nazareth and they're like excited but not really now because they're like, Nathaniel says, man, dog, like does anything good come out of Nazareth? And the answer to that culturally like it's a rhetorical question. No, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Nothing good. But God sends rescue to the least likely places. It's good news for us because a lot of us come from a place like Nazareth. I don't know, maybe it's Nashville or Nellis or Newark or New York City. I just needed some end names. Or hold your breath, New Leicester. You turn away from New Leicester, God goes to New Leicester. That's good news. God sends rescue to the least likely places. Or oh, forget names of places. Sometimes we feel in life like we are, we are nowhere. We are in a place. Nobody else would seek it out. You're stuck in Okinawa. Your family can't come here. You can't leave. Surely nobody wants to be here. Everybody else is turned away. God always turns toward the places that other people turn away from. God goes to the least likely places and the least likely people in those places. Guys, listen, this narrative is crazy. Mary's a young teen girl, right? Young teen girl. Culturally, in this day, if God was going to visit anybody, if he was going to show up with a message to somebody, for other people, who's he showing up to? An older man, a prophet, or a priest, but a man, likely a prophet, likely a priest, not a woman. Guys, listen, never a young teen girl. Never. God is not showing up to speak to a young teen girl. And So again, guys, Advent reminds us that our Father not only sends rescue to the least likely places, He seeks out the least likely places people in those least likely places that is the good news of the gospel and so as a family that's why we wait like David for our dad with confidence because he sends he sends to the hopeless places he sends to the places that nobody else would go to and he initiates he initiates with the least likely people like Mary in the least likely places and he gives rescue and Guy's rescue is not this gift that our father gives. Notice what he says to Mary, what, what Gabriel says, she's full of grace. Why? Because God is with her, right? That is the gift that the Father gives, His presence with us. We get. So- fixated on the gifts, like the secondary things. Fine. Like God gives us lots of good gifts. All of those things should turn our hearts back to him and remind us that really the gifts are, there's something, but they're almost nothing because without the giver of the gifts, we still have nothing. So good gifts, but good only insofar as they turn our hearts to, to him. But again, we spend most of our lives chasing after gifts. Like that's our, we hope in the gifts and not the giver of our, of those gifts. And so the father is pointing out very clearly the gift is his presence. He gives himself, he gives himself. That is our gift, the presence of our father. We were orphaned apart from Christ and his work on our behalf. We are orphaned kids who do not know the presence of a good father. And this is our dad signaling that for every one of his children that he sends to rescue, the greatest gift that he gives them is the presence of a dad the presence of a good father, a loving father who accepts, affirms, and loves, and keeps forever his kids. That's our rescue. Our rescue is the presence of our dad. That's the rescue. Uh, Mary, now look at this. Uh, There's no hint in the text that Mary asked for rescue, right? She's not initiating this conversation. Gabriel shows up and absolutely rocks her world that night. Again, 12, 13, 14, this messenger showing up and then telling her that she's going to be pregnant, like all this stuff. Mary hadn't asked for this, which again, guys, reminds us in the gospel, the father sends rescue for his kids without ever even being asked. He initiates and he sends. And you're like, wait, no, there was a day like I prayed and I asked God God for help. Sure, you did, and you must. You've got to repent and believe the gospel. You need to say something out loud to cry out to your dad. But do you know when we do that? We do that after days, weeks, months, seasons of the Father pursuing us in gentleness and kindness and working to soften our hearts and to rip that rebel heart out of our, out of our chests and give us a heart of flesh so that finally we will have a, a voice with faith and be like, Dad, I, I need you. Like, I've spent a lifetime running away from you. I need rescue. We do that after he has pursued us and he pursues hard for his kids. Notice in verse 30 to 31, the angel said to her, Mary, don't be afraid for you have found favor with God and behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. That's important to us. It's very important because you're sitting there talking about thinking like, John, why do you keep talking about Mary and rescue? What's this? Like, where's the rescue theme in all of this? Why would Mary think that she needs rescue right here? Jesus. So the name Jesus, Mary's... um, Mary's rocking Hebrew, right? She's she's raised in her Hebrew roots. Uh, The name Jesus is simply the Greek transliteration for the Hebrew name. Do you know it? There you go. Commonly known for us as Joshua, which means the Lord is salvation or God is my salvation, right? We would say God is my rescue, So the angel is telling Mary that the baby she's about to conceive and bear and learn to nurse and raise is going to be her rescuing king. This is for her rescue. Again, rescue is not a secondary gift that the father gives. He gives himself through Jesus and he is, he is our rescue, our salvation. Verses 32 to 33 Gabriel continues, he says, Mary, listen, your son, Jesus, is going to be great. That word great, there have been a lot of great people. There are a lot of other great characters in the Bible that we learn of, but not great in this way. This is unparalleled greatness. Gabriel's saying, Mary, your son will be one of a kind. There has never been somebody like him, and there will never be anyone like him ever. He will be the great one and he will be called the Son of the Most High. So as clearly as he can do it, this is Gabriel looking young Mary in the eyes and saying, girl, listen, your baby is going to be God himself. Like you will, the baby will, he's God when you give birth to him, he will be God when you swaddle him and nurse him. You are swaddling God himself. When you raise him and teach him, he's God. This is this, uh, clearly as he can say it, this is Gabriel making sure Mary understands deity. Not a normal human being, kid. Like, you are, you are bearing the Son of the Most High, Son of God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. We Remember, we mentioned that earlier. That matters. And with that throne, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. If by faith you have repented and believed, you are a part of the house of Jacob. Like, that's our family line. So Jesus is reigning over us forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. In other words, this is the king who will finally be the good king. He will finally... All other kings have been good somewhat, some bad kings mixed in there, some really bad kings mixed in there. Jesus finally is the good king who writes all the wrongs, uh, straightens out all the crooked pathways, brings justice to all the systemic injustice, brings mercy to those who have known uh, noth- just merciless existence, like he's the one. Like we said last week with Tolkien's quote, he's the one who finally makes all the sad things come untrue. This is the, and and of, of this work of his kingdom, there will be no end. So Mary understood in this moment that Jesus is the promised rescuing king that the prophets had always spoken of, that she had learned about from her own dad and uh, the rabbi in her own community. She would have known this. So you've heard the song, Mary, Did You Know, right? Could, could anybody stand up and sing it for me? <laughs> Mary, Did You Know? I think uh, next, or this coming Friday, OCSI is doing a little Christmas program and my daughter's doing a duet. I think it's this song. Like we were joking about this together. I think this is what she's singing. Um Mary did you know? So I'm titling the sermon, "Yes, yes I did. Yes I did," or something along those lines. Listen, Mary knew that her son Jesus was the promised rescuing king. So the answer to that song, every question that's asked, she absolutely without doubt knew that Jesus was the son of God he was the promised rescuing king and he would do incredibly great things for the father's fame and for our good Mary knew she knew Mary knew so the question then before us family this morning is do we know like Mary knew See, the challenge is most of us are too familiar with this passage. Maybe we've at least read it once a year or had it read over us. We know what's spoken in here. So intellectually we know. But the question is, do we really know? And the answer to that question, the way that we know that we know, if you will, is this. Simply, if we know, we wait in silence for God alone. That's how we know we know. Knowing people are waiting people because what we know is that our Father sends rescue and we have got to wait on Him to act. So we know and we wait in silence for God alone because our Father is the one who sends our rescue. Secondly, it's not just that we have a Father who sends, the Father sends the Spirit who works our rescue for us. Again, another Bonhoeffer quote from his letter He said, The door is locked and can only be opened from the outside. That's essentially what Mary said in her response to Gabriel, right? She said, verse 34, and Mary said to the angel, um, like just one question, sounds really good, but how will this be since I am a virgin? That's a fair question, yeah? 13, 14-year-old girl, finds out she's about to have a baby, not because she's been with a man, but because God's going to do something. Um, fair question. Not like her relative, Zechariah. We'll, we'll see his story next week. But you remember when the messenger showed up for him, and he and his wife were past childbearing years, and they made the, he made the announcement, hey, you're going to have a baby. What was his response? Scoffing, like laughter, like, yeah, you don't know my wife. You don't know me. You don't know. That's not happening, dog. Like, not happening. And what was the consequence for him? Do you remember? Yeah, loss of speech, like it was a lack of faith, which we'll we'll explore that next week. Mary's question is not a lack of faith. Um, she's curious, she's inquisitive, she's receiving, she just wanna know, like, how exactly this is this gonna all play out? Like, what's going on here? How will this be since I am a virgin? That's a fair question. Why? Because listen, what was promised is impossible insofar as it depends on Mary. Humanly impossible. But she's not told to work to accomplish her own rescue. What the messenger is going to say right here is that Mary, the Father, promises rescue and the Spirit works to accomplish your rescue. Look at this in verses 35 to 37. The angel answered her, Mary, here's how it's gonna work. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, I don't know about you, if I'm Mary, I want a little more detail than that. Like, So I'm asking the question, hoping for an answer. She gets one, but those are two fairly vague ideas, but it's just Gabriel saying, look girl, you're not going to have any part in this other than receiving the work that God does on your behalf. He's going to, the spirit will, will come upon you. He'll rest on you, and through his power, he's going to overshadow you, kind of circumvent the natural process of you becoming pregnant, and you will find yourself with child in your womb. It's impossible for her. The Spirit does the work. The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age, has conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. So not only is Mary just finding out that she's going to have a baby in this crazy, miraculous way, she just found out, too, that her barren relative is also expecting, and she's six months pregnant. She didn't know before this. So two impossibilities her becoming pregnant as a virgin at the age of 13, 14, and her older barren relative becoming pregnant. Two impossibilities, and it's at that point in verse 37 that Gabriel says, listen, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. It's impossible for you, Mary. It was impossible for for your relative Elizabeth and family. It is impossible for us. In the same way that uh, Elizabeth could not conceive and Mary could not conceive, there is a zero chance that any of us can do anything to reconcile ourselves to the God who created us and we rebelled against. Zero. Nothing we can do. No chance to reconcile. So what is impossible with us... Is possible with God because nothing is impossible for Him because the Spirit worked for Mary's good and the Spirit works for our good. Guys, in this moment, Mary knew and she was about to know in a very real way. So let me just ask you again do we know? Like, do we know in the sense that we believe that our Father promises and sends, got it, and do we, like, deep down in our core, in our ethos, where we make our decisions based on how we feel, do we feel that the Holy Spirit is the one who works for our good? Do you know how we know the answer to that question? It's whether or not we're waiting. Because if we know this, and we believe this, that we are, that it is impossible for us in life, apart from the work of the Spirit. We, above anything else, are a waiting people. David's journal entry is our journal entry. For you alone, O oh my soul, for you alone, O oh God, I wait in silence. We're a waiting people. I want to say a couple things about the virgin birth, right? That's kind of a pretty key feature in this passage. Um, and I, I just want to speak to it because um, um, I've been listening to a little more Joe Rogan lately than I just kind of increasing my Rogan diet and uh, in part just because he shepherds more men in our culture than any other man that I know so he is the secular pastor speaking into the lives of, of the young men of our culture and uh, I just uh, I want to be familiar with what he's communicating to people and he had this, this guest on um, earlier this week uh, who is a tenured professor at a reputable school, like the kind of school only my wealthy cousins could go to, and people smarter than me can go to so um, reputable guy and so the kind of the premise of the podcast was the Christian narrative is no different than any other religious narrative in fact, the narrative or his, his point was most of Christianity is born out of hallucinogenic, hallucinogenic uh, drugs, and it was just it was a crazy podcast, um, as you might imagine, but his point was there 's no difference, and the christian st- story simply mimics other stories of pagan deities and religions that have been written down uh well before we had the gospels and while I can't refute all of that this morning and that's not my point all I want to say about that is this in all of the accounts of a pagan god um giving its offspring into the human existence, right? There is no account like the virgin birth. There are always these accounts of a, of a human God actually being physically intimate, usually in, and just the stories become obscene and just over the top, but of a, of a, of a, of a deity of being physically intimate and creating life with a woman of the human race. There is no story in all of the pagan accounts of any pagan God, um, in any form, anything that would be anything similar to the virgin birth. It is, it is unique, and it stands alone in its beauty, and it's, uh, it's, it's sacred in a way that no other story can touch. And so in the virgin birth, what we see is a glimpse of both Jesus' divinity and his humanity. In other words, Jesus is fully God, uh, God the Father, through the Spirit, works to circumvent uh, uh, what would normally take place with Mary and, and place within her uh, the very Son of God himself. He, Jesus, from point of conception, if you will, to use that language, uh, always has been and always will be Son of God. He's fully God, but he's also fully man. He's being formed inside of Mary. He's being birthed by Mary and nursed and nurtured and raised by Mary. The, the virgin birth speaks to Jesus' divinity and his humanity. But the virgin birth also signals to us that our rescue, our salvation, is all grace with no human effort. This is all God. Basically, the explanation that Mary receives is uh, from Gabriel is, here's what's going to happen, and you're just going to receive. You're not active in any of this. I mean, you're going to do a little work. Like, I've heard that... At the point of birth, there's some exertion that takes place there. So, Mary, probably like, let's give her credit for that. But in terms of receiving the child and carrying the child, this was, well, not carrying, that's not fair either. She labored for that. Okay, let me just walk some of that back a little bit. In terms of receiving the child, it's all God. She just receives, which is a signal to everyone that our rescue, our salvation is all of grace with no human effort. That's what the virgin birth reminds us of. The virgin birth is also a sign of an unparalleled story of rescue and redemption. Look, you go back through the Old Testament, you can read some stories of old women who were barren, who had a baby, and their baby, like having that kind of miraculous birth, preceded God doing something amazing to rescue his people or for their good. We could think of, um, who can we think of? Um, Samuel was one, right? Samson was one. Isaac was one. And then John the Baptist, all mothers whose wombs were, they were done. No more babies. And God makes it happen. And then something amazing happens. And so the virgin birth stands alone. Uh, Jesus is different than those four. He's better than those four. So it's a signal to us. Uh, It's a signal that God is about to do something really big in redemptive history. In other words, uh, put it in the context of like a fight card. Um, Isaac and Samson and Samuel and John are just, they're like the lesser fights that you may or may not tune into leading up to the main event. Jesus is the main event in all of history. He's different and he's better. And so while God worked to rescue through the miraculous birth of each of those four, Uh, what he's going to do through this virgin birth of Jesus is going to be unparalleled uh, in all of history. Jesus is different and better. And so Mary's response to this in verse 38, Mary said, man, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. So let it be to me according to your word. Let it be to me according to your word guys we asked the question at the outset like how do we get to the point where like, prison walls lose their significance or we could write a letter like that or respond like this is it this is the response of 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 just complete trust and anchoring hope in the father and the spirit and the son not in our own ability she just simply are we say with mary i'm your servant god like what i trust you like i i believe you're a good father so i explicitly trust you with whatever comes into my life. Let it be to me according to your word because what is impossible with me is possible because the Spirit works. She believed and so she said words like that. So let me just ask you again. Like, do we believe that? Do we believe that? when, if, if we believe, we say words like, Dad, I'm your servant and I'm content, I'm okay, Trusting you with whatever you bring into my life. Good seasons, hard seasons. Today is hard. I've had pain relationally. Um, I'm okay. I'm your servant. You're my dad. I know you're good. Let it be to me according to your word. Guys, do we believe like her? If we do, we wait, and in our waiting, those are the words that come out of our mouths. Finally, We are awaiting people not just because the Father sends and not just because the Spirit works, but because Jesus is the fulfillment of our rescue. Another Bonhoeffer quote from his letter, remember he said, viewed from a Christian perspective, Christmas or any day in a prison cell, or insert your hardship, can of course hardly be considered particularly problematic and the prison walls lose their significance. Do you know why Dietrich could say that? And do you know why Mary could respond in this way? They could because what they could see in the gospel is that Jesus is the fulfillment of our rescue. And I don't need those undesirable, bad, or difficult things to go away in order to be okay or to be considered rescued. In other words, just put, let's push back a little bit on pop Christianity in our culture. Um, pop Christianity would say you are blessed if easy life, hardships away, good health, good money, easy marriage, uh, accelerating through your career, never passed over, orders of your choice, right? If, if you're blessed by God and um, you, he, is, he is working in your way, in this. Country, all of these things should line up. But that's not true. And that's not what the gospel communicates to us. Those are not the fulfillments of our father's promise. They are not. They may be good things that we experience, but they're not the fulfillment. Jesus is the fulfillment of my Father's promise. So when I have Jesus in any context, I can be okay. My context doesn't need to change. It doesn't need to be another person. I don't need to be selected. I can be passed over. I don't need to get the duty station of my choice. Fill in the blank, fill in the blank. I'm not dependent on health. I'm not dependent upon prosperity. That's not the fulfillment of my Father's promises. Jesus is the fulfillment of His promises. fulfills our rescue. I don't need more money to be rescued. I don't need better health to be rescued. I don't need better friends. I don't need a better me to be rescued. I need Jesus and I need his presence. He is our rescue. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the Father's promise and his presence brings joy into every circumstance no matter how hard. I love this. This is one of the, this is maybe the most, this is the favorite piece of this whole passage for a lot of people in verses 44 and 45. Right after Mary finds out Elizabeth's pregnant, she goes to see her relative. She walks in. Uh, the Holy Spirit is on uh, Elizabeth, so she's she's seeing and hearing and experiencing things she wouldn't necessarily see, hear, and experience in the same way. And John goes nuts in her womb. He's just going. He's just kicking, flailing, like unusually so. And so she speaks to Mary and she says, "Mary, listen. When the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy." He leaped for joy at Jesus' presence. And that's what the narrative would have us to see. I can be in the valley of the shadow of death and my heart can still leap for joy because Jesus is present there with me. I don't need to be outside of the valley. You don't need to be outside of the valley. You can have joy in the valley of the shadow of death because Jesus is there with you. We have to tell our hearts, guys, because our hearts don't believe that. We only believe joy when circumstance change, joy when spouse change, joy when I'm selected, joy when fill in the blank. That's not the hope of the gospel. That is a hopeless existence right there. The hope of the gospel is joy even in the valley of the shadow of death. And we see that in John's response, right? And so Elizabeth says, blessed is the one who believed or hoped and acted upon God's promises. And yes, Mary was blessed, but that blessing is not unique to Mary. You can know that same, that blessing. You will never carry Jesus as she did, but you can know the same blessing. How do we know that? A little later in the Gospels, Jesus is having a conversation in the crowd. And um, in Luke 11, verses 27 and 28, here it is uh, somebody uh, spoke out to the crowd. And uh, so Jesus said these things. And then a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Yo, Jesus, we've heard about your mom. She is blessed. Blessed is the womb that bore you, and blessed are the breasts at which you nurse. Right? Speaking mom up, speaking her up. And Jesus doesn't like go hard disagree with her, but he says, no, wrong focus. Like, don't view my mom in that way. Yeah, she's like, she's blessed. She knew God's favor, but not in a way that you can't. Not in a special way. She does not need to be revered by you. Uh, You can be the same as her because look, he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Guys, in the same way that Mary knew blessing in the waiting, that same blessing is available for us in the waiting, in silence, waiting for God alone, believing that the Father sends, the Spirit works, and Jesus is the fulfillment. Like Mary, the blessing is found in the waiting. Guys, that takes a lot of pressure. Um, You know, our culture is all over the place. Some people celebrate Christmas, some don't. Some people celebrate Hanukkah, some don't. But collectively, this is kind of known as the holiday season, right? That's kind of our cultural reality. So missiologically, we need to be able to speak into that. And um, in this holiday season, if you will, the, the, the pressure is that everything will be good. I can make everything right in my life for this season so that I can know joy and know peace, right? These are the things I'm supposed to know and feel, if not in the holidays, then at no other time, right? There's just this magical idea that's out there in our culture. Guys, that's a, that is a gospel of death. There's no hope in that because you can't change your circumstances that way. You can't change your heart like that. You can't, you can't do that. The good news of the gospel is that we are not dependent upon God's blessing. Um, we're not dependent upon our circumstances change to know God's blessing in this way. Our blessing, rather, is found in the waiting. So I'm in the valley of the shadow of death. My hope is not getting out of the valley. My hope is knowing Jesus' presence in the valley. And I can stay in this valley because I know Christ is here with me. And he is the fulfillment of my rescue. I don't need to get out of the valley to be rescued. I have Christ. And with that deeply held belief, Mary kind of explodes here in this expression of hope to to wrap up the chapter. Uh, We know this as the, do you know what it's called? The Magnificat. And that name, I don't know any Latin, so my study tools tell me that it's the Magnificat, right? But we know that because it, it comes from the opening word of this paragraph where it says, my soul magnifies the Lord. This is, her, this, is her, this is what it sounds like when our hope is anchored in Jesus. These are the kinds of things that we'll say, the songs that we sing. And look at what she sings. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. I brag on him. I talk, I talk more about him now than I talk about me. And listen, guys, we talk most about what we wait on and hope for the most. So you want to know what we're waiting on? You want to know what we're hoping for? Listen to what we talk about. And for here, it's clear Mary's uh, hope now is anchored in God. She hasn't said much in in this passage at all, right? Mary's pretty quiet here until this. And she just explodes. Here's what she says. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices. I've got joy. Real joy in God. Look at in God. Not circumstances, not people, not Joseph, is he going to freak out, is he going to marry me? Not any of those, in God. He's our hope, right, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Like he came to the places other people turn away from. And for uh, behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. That's so personal. He who is mighty. Has done great things for me. And holy is his name. There's nobody like him. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. God's mercy is not exhausted one generation after another. New mercy, new kindness that he gives to his kids. He has shown strength with his arm on my behalf. And on his people's behalf, he scatters the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. And guys, I would not be faithful to you if I didn't say, look, where it says that Jesus brings down the mighty... You have to know that Jesus will do this. And if you posture yourself as autonomous from God or independent of God, mighty enough that you don't need God, you have to know that as the rightful king, Jesus will bring you down in judgment. You gotta know it. It's there. But that's not all that he says. He will bring you down in judgment or he will exalt those of humble estate. So if you posture yourself as needy, and you cry out for for help from the Father, if you are are humble before him, you are dependent upon him, you know that you need him, your experience will not be judgment. Your experience will be mercy, no matter what you've done. No matter what you've done. He has filled the hungry with good things. Even in the valley of the shadow of death, he fills our souls with good things. But the rich, those who don't think they need anything, he has sent away empty. And he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Guys, we need a song. You need a personalized Magnificat. You need your own. Like, you need a song like Mary's and you need to take this and own it. Why not write one for yourself? Like, why not write a song like this? If we believe that the Father sends, the Spirit works, and Jesus fulfills, not only will we wait for him, we will have a flow of words that we could write down that would form a song just like this one. And writing a personal magnificat would not only help us wait, um, it would help us remember that Jesus, that the Father... Look at, look at all this language in here. He has shown strength. He has scattered. He brings down. Um, he fills. Uh, he sends away. He helps. He speaks. Guys, we've got to remember that. He is the one who works. So family, in closing, the door is locked and can only be opened from the outside. What is impossible for us is possible with God. Our prison walls will lose their significance only as we learn, like David, to wait in silence for the Father alone, expecting the Spirit to work, and believing that Jesus is my hope, and my hope is from him. Do you have any favorite bands at this time of year, which is kind of maybe festive that you listen to and then they're done in January? I'm alone. Okay, fine, fine. Oh, just one of my favorites is um, at this time of year is August burns red. Just a phenomenal traditional holiday. And um, in one of their songs, they have these lyrics that I just want to leave you with this. This is what they sing: We are found, found in faraway places when all seems lost. We are found in faraway places. Not all is lost. Guys, when our eyes are not on Christ, it's so easy to feel like we are in a faraway place where others turn away to include God. We won't be found. Our hope is lost. But guys, with this, with this story, there is no such place like that. We are definitely all found in faraway places. And like Mary, we are the least likely people. But our father pursues to the farthest away place. He goes to the least likely person. And with a sending father, a working spirit, and a fulfilling son, you are never in a place in this life where all is lost. Never a dark moment in your life where we can say with integrity, all is lost. Because if the father's sending, the spirit's working, and Jesus is fulfilling on your behalf, you will never know a moment in your entire existence where that is true of you. Ever. The father keeps you, he adopts you, he keeps you forever. You're in his family. You will always know his love. He will always be sending your way and he will never let you go. Um, Ben is going to come now and lead us in a response as a family um, to help us kind of keep pressing into this idea that we are a waiting family.